Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. And this is Mike Delisio, the host of the podcast. And Today, we're going to be doing something a bit different. Um, in the changing world of regulatory environment within compounding pharmacy, I would say it's safe to say that 2019 has been a year of change. Um, and as we embark on the changing regulations to both USP 795 and 797, um, and also encompassing USP 800, we've been faced with dealing with many, many questions on this topic, and we couldn't think of a better way to record an episode with Dylan Herr, Quality Assurance and Regulatory Affairs Specialist with Eagle Analytical. So welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Dylan, there's, there's a reason why you're here. Um, like I said, it's this year has been marked with so much changes. Recently, USP has announced guideline changes to both 797 and 795 as it pertains to both non-sterile and sterile compounding. Um, Kind of walk me through what it has been on your end. I know that you've been with Eagle for two years and now faced with some of these changes. Talk to me a bit more about what you do with compounding pharmacists as well as how you work with some of these people to try to get them up to speed and compliant. Yeah, sure. So like you were saying, there's been a lot of changes recently. Uh, June 1st, they released the new chapters of 797 795 and 800, and all of those will become effective in December 2019. Then at that point, it's up to state boards to enforce the new changes or not. Um, So obviously, we get a lot of questions about this. So kind of on a daily basis, we try to help walk people through the changes, understand how it's going to affect their practice and so on. We also do a lot of consulting with compounding pharmacies and GMP operations. So we can come in and, you know, we we offer a whole range of services. So we can do a gap analysis assessment. So that's where we'll look at your facility, your procedures, your training programs, documentation, records, and, and so on, and evaluate how they do or do not comply with the regulatory requirements. Uh, Then we can help you develop corrective action plans to bridge the gaps between where you are and where you need to be to be compliant and, you know, help implementing those as well if you need procedures written, training performed, and and so on. Um, So we've done that a lot in the past for the current chapters of 797 and 795, but we can also do that with the uh, they're not proposed anymore with the revised chapters. So Eagle's obviously transitioned from just being a straight testing company into doing the consulting. You've been brought along, uh, and now you're becoming an expert with respect to these chapters and the requirements for all of these pharmacies and the changes. So we've already started talking about the timeline. We've seen that the chapters have now been published. So you said they're going to be in effect December 1st, and then the state boards are going to have to come in. So to your perspective, what should pharmacies be doing first today? They should definitely be downloading the new chapters and reading them, rereading them, maybe reading them one more time because each time you read them, it pops out something different. 
Uh, and then you kind of want to do kind of like the gap analysis that we're talking about. So when you download these chapters and you're reading through them, you kind of want to get a sense of, okay, where do I compare with these requirements and what changes do I need to make? Uh, and then, you know, of course, you don't just make changes, you need to update standard operating procedures, make them official, train on them. Uh, one of the themes in the new chapter of 797 is you know, documentation and kind of having a paper trail for everything that you do. So with this chapter, I, I can imagine it's close to 7,000 pages. <laughs> um, I, we, when we asked you to do this, you said that you, you spent quite a bit of time preparing for this and you've got 10 pages of notes. We don't have time to go through 10 pages <laughs> of notes. We don't have time to go through the entire chapter. So I wanted to kind of get you to touch on some of the highlights that we were discussing prior that you see as big fundamental changes that are going to really jump out to our, to, our, to our members and to fundamental changes that they're going to be looking at with respect to making uh, strides towards becoming compliant. So first one off the top, we've, we've got to talk about it, uh, categories. Category one, category two, could you could we dive into that one a little bit? Yep, sure. So the new chapter of 797 does away with the old way of categorizing CSPs. So there's no more low, medium, or high risk, depending on whether the starting components are or are not sterile. Uh, instead, there's two main categories, category one CSPs and category two CSPs. And then there's also the third category, which is immediate use CSPs. So immediate use, it's basically something that's made for a single patient, and it will be administered within four hours, and it can only be made from three or less sterile starting components. So I don't think that most of the people who are going to be tuning in are really engaged in immediate use. That's more like hospitals, that's doctor's offices, hospital. yeah. and so on. So the two big ones are category one and category two. And the main difference is the environment in which they're prepared and the resulting risk of microbial contamination based on that environment. And then as a result, what BUD you can assign to them. So category one CSPs are made in a segregated compounding area and not a clean room. So segregated compounding area is basically just an ISO 5 hood within a area that's, you know, it's not near doors or windows, but it's not an ISO 7 buffer room. It's just general unclassified space. So if you're doing a category one CSP, then you get a very short beyond use date. So it's less than 12 hours room temperature or less than 24 hours refrigerated. Yeah. So as it pertains specifically to compounding labs, individuals that are either outsourcing facilities or some clients that you would work with directly. This is not something that is commonly done amongst compounding pharmacies. So if you can kind of walk through um, some of the process or some of your experiences as it pertains to labs in general and where people have faced challenges meeting the guidelines for 797, if you were to give a blanket statement to recommend something as it pertains to the 797 documentation, the importance of clean room and the importance of having the segregation areas and, and obviously ISO 7 and ISO 5 environments. What are your number one recommendations as it pertains to the guidelines? Okay, so 
what you're saying, um, you know, most of the compounding facilities who are really doing any type of volume in their operations are going to be operating in a clean room. Um, as long as the clean room meets the standards in 797, the compounds that they prepare in that clean room will be considered category two. Um, also, just to throw it out there, for category one CSPs, you still need to follow all the other requirements in the chapter that are not specifically called out for as category one only. So same garbing, hand washing, training requirements, and so on. Um, so for category two, and to kind of answer your, what do we see most when we're out there? Most people have a well-designed clean room facility. There are some frequently occurring um, design flaws that we do see, but the most common actually is uh, its use. So poor aseptic technique is really common. Um, and that is what FDA is incredibly focused on right now. So the insanitary guidelines document gives a ton of examples that we see often. Um, not disinfecting supplies as they're staged, moving too quickly, taking your hands in and out of the hood without sanitizing that. All of those types of things occur and are not really related to the space that you're operating in as much as how well your people are trained. And these are things that you look for when you're doing an on-site audit and you're working with a, with any specific customer trying to maintain their compliance. These are things that you're identifying, um, both from aseptic technique as well as things as the FDA would potentially be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So usually I like to, and the other consultants like to watch each sterile compounder go about their daily routine from hand washing to compounding to cleaning. Um, because that is what you see the most write-ups for in 503A pharmacies that are meeting the exemptions for the FDA to consider them a 503A. Uh, it's all about sterility assurance, mm -hmm. and poor aseptic technique is going to be the number one way that you're contaminating the meds that you're making. So on the topic of environment and lab setup, I think this is something that from a sales side of things, we get tons of questions on. People still need some clarity in terms of what they need, um, how they want to outfit their labs, the environment that they plan on compounding in. Um, walk us through also the, the preparatory side of things in terms of what people will need in their clean room um, to ensure that there's appropriate practice on board and some of the changes that 797 has already outlined. Sure. So I think one of the big changes in terms of the clean room is that it's now required that any pre-sterilization procedures, such as weighing out your non-sterile powders, putting them into solution, and so on, you've always been required to do them in an ISO 8 or better environment. Now you're required to do them inside of a primary engineering control inside that ISO 8 room. So primary engineering control could be a powder containment hood, a biosafety cabinet, a isolator, um, but it need, the powder needs to be contained. Um, we don't recommend that you do that in your ISO 5 hood, although that would be acceptable in the current chapter, uh, but you're really introducing particulate, uh, non-sterile powder, all the kind of stuff that you don't want in your cleanest, most controlled space. Uh, so typical design that we recommend is a powder containment hood inside an isolate anteroom. So your facilities are still setting up to minimum two-room 
preferable mm -hmm. three room. But then when you're talking about USP 800 laid on top, then we're going to have a different airflow. But again, still uh, primary engineering control for dust containment. You're still going to need an ISO class five hood for uh, sterility purposes. You're going to have to have designated staff that are trained uh, pharmacists. And we even talked about a new quality assurance person, really, for sterile, which may be a different person than the pharmacist in charge. They're, like That is a huge piece, is having a quality assurance program. Right. It's a huge piece. So it's the new chapters, 797, 795, and 800, all call it a designated person or persons. And it basically says that each pharmacy has to designate one or more individuals to be responsible and accountable for the performance and operation of the facility and personnel. Um, so it, it's really a quality assurance unit is what it would be in traditional GMP operations. And they're kind of bringing that into compounding pharmacies. So one of the things we see a lot when we're consulting is people try to do too much. You know, the pharmacist in charge tries to wear too many hats. So they try to be the pharmacist in charge who's responsible for getting things out the door and also be the quality assurance person or the um, designated person and make sure that they are operating as they must to meet quality and regulatory requirements. Um, so a, a lot of really well-intentioned pharmacies, I think, fall short when they don't dedicate at least most of one person's job responsibilities towards being this designated person. So what you're saying is we're having to see a more significant, not only financial investment, but personnel investment mm -hmm. and time investment into doing sterile compounding. This isn't, this, this is the evolution. What we did before isn't what we're gonna have to do anymore. And so these changes are, are significant and, and this is where we're gonna have to really engage with Eagle for resource, resources into doing it right. Yeah, absolutely. And this would be what FDA would expect as well. Um, you know, so as someone who's lived through an FDA inspection at a sterile compounding pharmacy, um, they're definitely looking for someone who fills this role in quality assurance. So you, you really want one person who knows your procedures in and out, who knows where to find every bit of documentation that you require, um, who knows what the clean room certification requirements are, how they have to be documented, and actually reviews those reports. So multiple places I've gone to and when I'm auditing their facility certification reports, like a hood has failed or the pressure differentials has failed. And the pharmacist had no idea because they weren't really reading the reports and the certifier didn't put a big fat red F on the front of the report. FDA won't miss that though, that something has failed. Um, so it's really about assigning people accountability for making sure that all these requirements are met and knowing what they are. And, you know, we're definitely looking to try to help people understand that, um, you know, because they know it's, it's kind of foreign to a lot of pharmacists. You know, they're brilliant at the clinical parts and the practical parts of getting stuff out of the door. All of this quality system stuff is kind of a new territory. Um, so whether you want us to assist in coming on site, we can help you develop these systems, train on these systems. Um, we're also going to be offering a day-long seminar before International this year that is all about quality systems and the responsibilities of the designated person to help 
you understand what needs to be done and really how to apply it in real life. Um, you know, we, we definitely want to be of assistance in this and I'm a quality assurance nerd, so I love all of this. <laughs> I, I really don't remember quality assurance in pharmacy uh, <laughs> education. I remember clinical, I remember all sorts of stuff, but not this part. Yeah, they forgot marketing. Oh, marketing. Business. And quality Pricing. assurance. Quality <laughs> yeah. assurance. There you go. It's the, the reason why for this podcast. Um, uh, Dylan, I want you delivered already a ton of information and a lot of specifics as it pertains to classification, et cetera. Let's take things back a sec. So we're obviously focused in the world of sterile compounding in Chapter USP 797. Um, fundamentally, what type of timeline are we looking at? I know you mentioned a June 1st revision date. Um, Talk to me a bit more about the timeline and, and where we're going next. Sure. Um, and, and so I said earlier that the chapters were going to become effective in December 2019, so December 1st, 2019. Kind of misspoke. It's really that they will become official with the USP in December of 2019. Um, but USP actually makes it very clear in all of the chapters that they are a standards-making body. They are not an enforcement agency, mm -hmm. so they will not enforce any of this. It's all up to your state board of pharmacy if you're a 5038 compounding pharmacy. So it will really depend on what your board decides to do. Um, a lot of board laws that I've looked at have said you follow the current chapter of 797, so it makes a reference to whatever's current. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then come December, this new chapter will be the current chapter. Um, other state boards, they don't refer to the chapter as a whole, but instead they take out certain parts. So the enforcement timeline there will probably be longer because they're going to have to actually revise their laws. So it, it really depends on a state-by-state -state basis. And then people have to consider, you know, if you're, multi if you're licensed in multiple states, you need to follow the board requirements in each of those states. So you also want to consider that as well. From our point of view, um, things get a bit vague, and we'll call it gray, uh, because we're often asked about USP guidelines as it pertains to certain states, and some individuals have intimate knowledge of their inspectors and what is coming through their own pipeline. Is there a, an easy way to answer the question of potentially what EGLE stance is and what individuals should be doing for best practice as one definitive way to regulate yourself? If, if these are the written guidelines, how should a pharmacy proceed regardless of what state they're in or what state they're doing business in? Yeah, sure. So FDA, if they come in to inspect you, they're not really going to care what your state board says. So if they determine that you meet the exemptions to be considered a 503A, they will inspect you under a mix of USP and their guidelines on insanitary conditions. And just a little note on that is they don't always agree. So USP does not require that you use sterile wipes in your ISO 5. Insanitary guidelines does. So even if you're following USP to the T, FDA will still write you up for certain things. Um, so you kind of have to be aware of that. Another thing to consider is these are now standards. So if I were a pharmacy owner, I would be worried about liability. Um, we talk about it a lot with 800 too. Um, even if your state isn't going to enforce 800, it is now out there as a standard for protecting workers from exposure mm -hmm. to dangerous substances. So it's going to be hard if 
an employee takes you to court to argue that you didn't know that you needed to be doing these things to protect your workers. Right. I think it's kind of the same with 797. Now that this is out there, it's going to be hard to argue that you didn't know And then product better. liability being just as important as personnel liability. So Right, because you know the end goal of 797 is to protect the patient who gets the drugs that you make. And everything in here that might seem more strenuous, you know, we may not or may not agree with it all, but it's all end goal is patient safety. So of course I talk to a lot of pharmacy owners uh, and members and they go, eh, what are the chances of the FDA walking through my doors and inspecting me? Uh, you know, I'm not doing a lot of sterile. I'm not a big sterile compounder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so really, like that's the question I get. And so I'm going to defer to you and your expertise on this one. Well, for one, I can say if you ever have an adverse event or a patient complaint and it gets reported to MedWatch, you can pretty much guarantee that FDA will be coming in to inspect your facility. So even if you're only doing 10 scripts a month, if one of those results in some kind of complaint, you're going to get an inspection. Um, we don't really know how FDA makes their decision on who to inspect or not to inspect. Um, you know, they say it's risk-based and so on. So you'd think that would mean high volume. But we've seen them go into a lot of relatively small compounding facilities. Um, they're also going into non-sterile only compounding facilities. So the focus is not just on these sterile compounders that are doing 1,000 scripts a day. I would say it's pretty safe to assume that if you're doing sterile compounding, you can inspe- expect an FDA inspection at some point. So we've talked about the facilities. We've talked about a, a quality assurance program, designated person persons. We've talked a little bit about the uh, changes in facility requirements. And then certainly you started alluding to it, but I'm, I'm going to have to ask. We've seen some significant changes with respect to beyond use dates. Um, we, we know we're going to be getting a ton of questions about this. So what are the changes with beyond use dates? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, they're not that great for compounders. So the new chapter 797 has totally taken out any language that refers to what a sterile compounder can do to extend their beyond use dates. So previous chapter 797, you could use peer-reviewed journals, you could use scientific studies, you could use your own stability studies that you've conducted in-house, and so on. So all of that language is gone in the new chapter. Um, We were hopeful because the proposed revision, all of that language was gone at that point, but in the introductory section, they said that the expert committee is considering issuing guidance on how to extend your BUD using a stability indicating assay and doing other testing as appropriate, like antimicrobial effectiveness, particulate, sterility, and so on. So at Eagle, we were thinking it was kind of going to go the same way that 795 has gone, which requires stability study using a stability indicating assay to do any kind of extending of beyond use dates. Um, However, there is not any information on the new chapter on being able to extend the beyond use date. And if you take a look at the USP FAQ section that's on their website, um, they do kind of address this. Um, They say that BEDs need to be assigned in accordance with either Table 10 or Table 11 or with a compounded preparation monograph if one exists. 
So if there's a monograph for a compound that you're making and you follow it exactly, you can use that BUD, even if it's longer than what's in the chapter. If not, you're stuck with Table 10 or Table 11. Uh, table 10 is for the Category 1 CSPs, so the ones that are made in a segregated compounding area, 12 hours room temp, 24 hours refrigerated. And the Category 2 CSPs are the ones that are made inside of a clean room facility. So it's a little bit more of a complicated scheme for assigning BUDs than it was in the previous chapter. So previous chapter had it based on low, medium, or high risk. Now it's primarily based on whether the product is aseptically processed or terminally sterilized and whether or not it passes sterility testing and then whether you store it room temp refrigerated or frozen. So there's like 10 or 12 maybe different options for BUDs. So this is recent. You mentioned a June 1st revision date and I guess you can see people are still trying to digest and accept some of these changes. What has been some of the feedback from the customers that we deal with at Eagle? Yeah, it's not good, um, especially because at Eagle, you know, we do a lot of stability studies to help compounders extend mm -hmm. their BUDs with a scientific justification. And that's kind of my feeling, you know, if you have done the appropriate scientific testing that the FDA would accept from a 503B facility or from a pharma manufacturer to show that your product is good for a certain amount of time, why can't you use that in a pharmacy? It's, however, you know, it, it's just not being allowed under 797 anymore. So the max BUD that you can get is 90 days, which doesn't sound too bad, but that is if you have terminally sterilized, sterility tested, and it's stored frozen. So, you know, really only a subset of the formulations that you make are going to be able to withstand terminal sterilization and going to be able to be stored at a frozen condition. Um, the other thing that compounders are concerned about is sterility testing. Um, so in the past, in 797, it was if your batch is greater than 25 units, or it had an extended beyond use date, you had to sterility test. Here, that 25 units is taken away. So if you have a batch of one, you're gonna have to do a sterility test if you want to assign a BUD that requires a sterility test. So for an actual example, um, if you've sterilized it by filtration and your batch size is one, if you haven't done a sterility test, you can give it four days room temp 10 days refrigerated or 45 days frozen. So, you know, it, it's tough. 10 days refrigerated does not really fit with where a lot of practices are in terms of how they structure their workload, how they treat their patients and so on. If you've sterility tested that same batch, you can store it for 30 days room temp, 45 days refrigerated or 60 days frozen. So 45 days refrigerated is not that bad in terms of a beyond use date, but where pharmacies are concerned is the cost. You're now gonna need to sterility test every batch that you make if you want to be able to give a BUD that's really workable. When you're talking about cost of compounding and testing, and we're seeing these batches of one, um, 
are we starting to see that uptick yet? Or are people calling and saying, how are we going to achieve this? Do we have any options available to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've definitely been having this conversation with a lot of customers who are concerned about this. Um, It's a hard balance to strike because you want to make a batch that is big enough to distribute the costs of testing across more units. You know, a batch of one, a $95 sterility test adds $95 to that cost. If it's a batch of 100, you're not adding quite so much to the cost of each unit. But you now need to balance this with this shorter BUD. So can you really go through 100 units in 45 days? Um, so it's, it's an interesting balance to try to strike. The only good thing is that they did add in a section on the amounts required for sterility testing when the batch size is less than 40. So sterility testing, the amounts that you're required to test is based on table three in USP 71. So in the past, it was if your batch size is 40 units or less, you have to test four containers. So it would be pretty hard if you make a 10-unit batch, you need to make an additional four to send for sterility testing. New chapter of 797 says that if your batch size is less than 40 units, you can test 10% of your batch size rounded up to the next whole number. So batch size of 10, you only have to test one. Batch size of 15, you test two instead of four. Um, Another thing about testing is if the BUD that you're assigning your category two CSP requires sterility testing, then you also need to test for bacterial endotoxins as well. So endotoxin testing, that's available through Eagle as well. Yep, absolutely. We can do endotoxin, sterility. Endotoxin, we usually only need about two mils of product, so you don't have to make a whole bunch of extra just to send it for testing. So this is going to start to play into the formulations and looking at volume when making these and maybe maybe anticipating uh, usage over the course of a month. We might actually have to do some analytics on our usage and then start pulling patients together so we can become a little bit more efficient in our compounding. Yeah, it, it's kind of antithetical to the way that compounding has evolved over the years. Um, but when I'm consulting and I'm trying to help people understand how they can meet these regulatory requirements but still run a profitable business, um, something that I tell them a lot is the more you can have a formulary of what you make, the better off you'll be. Because then you can get into batching spreading the cost of testing across multiple prescriptions and so on, um, I think it's going to be a lot harder to serve the function that compounding pharmacies have in the past where they make 350 different strengths of Trimix. Um, They still can. They still can. It's just going to be be, more limited. It's going to be significantly more limited. It's either going to have to cost more for the patient, so the patient absorbs that cost instead of the pharmacy, or it's going to have a much shorter beyond you state. Um, So some of this might involve kind of rethinking the way that you package and dispense your formulations. Um, So Trimix, for example, instead of dispensing a five mil vial that a patient uses for multiple doses, you might want to dispense five one mil vials. So now you can store all of those in the freezer. You can get the frozen beyond you state, which is a lot more generous. 
and then the patient can take out just one vial at a time to use it. Those vials, once they're moved to the refrigerator, will now have that shorter BUD, but you're able to label the whole thing with a longer BUD, and then there's some more flexibility for patients there as well. So in, in that case, there is still some latitude. We just have to be very cognizant of those new tables for requirements for beyond use dates and ensuring that you were not overstepping. Yep, yep. And actually, what I should mention while we're talking about frozen, um, this is not to just say that you can throw anything in the freezer and it will be okay. Uh, PCCA Clinical Services knows a lot more than me about what can and cannot be frozen. And the new chapter actually addresses this as well. So it says that if you're going to store it in a frozen state, you need to ensure that the container closure system can withstand the physical stress of freezing and thawing. And then you need to make sure that the CSP is thawed under appropriate conditions, usually refrigerated, and you're not allowed to refreeze it. So that's why I was saying multiple small packages instead of one five mil vial that goes in and out and in and out of the freezer. And also, by the way, um, temperature of freezing is minus 20. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, I interrupted. Negative uh, 25 to negative 10 degrees Celsius. Yeah, and that's key because a lot of freezers at people's homes, uh, you have to give them you have to give them those parameters because you can't just be like, oh yeah, it's it's in it's in a regular freezer fridge combo. Yep. Yeah, I always recommend on your labeling to specify what the controlled temperatures mean. So don't just say refrigerated, say two to eight. Don't just say room temp, say twenty to twenty five, and so on. Yep. More precision. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, also, while t while we're talking BUDs, the new chapter it. Assign, it allows a lot longer BUD if you've terminally sterilized your CSPs as opposed to aseptically processing it. So aseptically processing it, it's going to be you're mixing two sterile components or you're sterilizing it by filtration. Terminal sterilization is the sterilization of the sterile product in its sealed, closed, final container. So autoclave, dry heat, irradiation, and so on. Um, New chapter specifically says that terminal sterilization is the preferred method unless the product or the container closure system can't withstand it. And the reason for that is terminal sterilization has a higher sterility assurance level than aseptic processing. You know, anything that might have gotten into that product or in the container is going to be killed as opposed to the risk of recontaminating the downstream sterile product after it goes through the filter. Um, similar to freezer, you can't just throw everything into the dry heat oven and say, now it's terminally sterilized, I have a longer beyond use date. Um, new chapter is very clear on validating your sterilization cycles, including loading conditions, time, temperature, pressure, and so on. All of that needs to be done and documented and followed every time. So if you validated your autoclave for a batch of 100, you can't just throw 200 in there the next day. Um, you have to use the right kind of biological indicator or endotoxin challenge vial and so on to really prove and document in a report that you could hand to the FDA and they'd be cool with that your sterilization process has worked. And obviously we can help you through all of that too. So this is gonna go back to a lot more education and more training more documentation, more just more vigilance 
every day when you're doing this. And it's just the, the requirements are going to be more robust. But we're really fortunate that we have Eagle and we have you, who's lived through an FDA inspection, and uh, come up the other side with your valuable insights. And so thank you so much for sharing some of these thoughts. And thank you for sharing. This, this is a very high level conversation because we know the document is very, very um, detail oriented. Mm -hmm. So thank you for some of those highlights and sharing that info with us. You're very welcome. Yeah, Dylan, um, you possess a ton of knowledge. And I felt like we didn't really get a chance to talk about you and talk about <laughs> your experience with Eagle um, since this was so content heavy and we had to get right into it and start discussing the, the revised changes to the guidelines. Um, how can individuals get a hold of you directly? Because I know that you've worked with so many pharmacies um, and outsourcing facilities. So how can they get a hold of you if they do have interest with compliance uh, moving forward down the road to perform gap analysis, et cetera, um, and to work with you and specifically with Eagle? So you can find us online. We're at eagleanalytical.com. You can call Eagle. Our customer care department will get you in contact with me. Uh, happy to discuss any of these questions that might come up. Uh, you know, know it's overwhelming. And you can reach me at dher, H-E-R-R, -R, at eagleanalytical.com. Yeah, and you, your website was recently redesigned, and it is beautiful, number one. Number two, um, kind of guides the individual to basically where you need to go. Um, obviously, Eagle does more than just perform gap analysis and, and help educate and train. Um, on top of everything we discussed with Ross on episodes four and five in the world of analytical testing as it pertains to BUDs, as it pertains to sterility and bacterial endotoxin, the list goes on and on. But um, there's so much that goes on within your domain. And you gave us some brief insight today in terms of some of these changes. And like I said, when we kicked off uh, the podcast, Number one question that we get as a team at PCCA would be, help me understand the guideline changes as it pertains to all 795, 797, and 800. And today was really good deep dive um, into sterile guidelines. So thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you so much to all of our listeners out there for tuning into this episode. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and follow us on either LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio, and thanks for listening.